The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, David Quammen, is an award-winning journalist and author who covers exploration, field biology, and human survival in remote landscapes, often on assignment for National Geographic magazine. He's been honored with three National Magazine Awards and an Academy Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. David Quammen has also been on the trail of the Ebola virus, making 18 trips to Africa since 1999 and writing an article for National Geographic in 2007 entitled Deadly Contact, which recounted an outbreak of Ebola in a remote African village. His research into Ebola eventually led to the book's Spillover in 2012, and now his latest best-selling book, Ebola, The Natural and Human History of a Deadly Virus. The New York Times says David Quammen is not just among our best science writers, but among our best writers. Welcome to Health Watch, David Quammen. Thank you. Very good to be with you. So, David, uh, did you end up writing Ebola, or were you prompted to write Ebola and update what you wrote in Spillover because of the latest outbreak in West Africa? Yes, absolutely. The new book, uh, little book, Ebola, has drawn to a great extent from sections of spillover that discussed Ebola, the ecology, the origins of the virus, the history of human outbreaks, uh, and the search for the reservoir host of Ebola, where it lives when it's not killing humans. My British publisher asked me if I would pull out those sections and write some new material and and create a a standalone book um, that would help people in the midst of this very scary and confusing uh, Ebola crisis in West Africa help them to understand the the virus in larger context. Well, one of the really nice things you do in both of the books is you you start out by establishing the terms for people who aren't familiar with biology or epidemiology. And one of the things you you point out at the beginning is that Ebola is a zoonotic disease versus other diseases like smallpox or polio, which aren't zoonotic. So can you tell us what zoonosis is so that our... Yeah, this is crucial. Zoonosis is an animal infection that's transmissible to humans, something that comes from non-human animals and spills over. That's the the reason for the title of my 2012 book, spills over into human victims. And that includes, oh, a large range, both of the most... um, most notorious older diseases like bubonic plague, uh, but also many of the many of the new scary emerging diseases, particularly viruses such as Ebola and Marburg and SARS and MERS. Uh, so uh, these zoonotic um, zoonotic infections they can be bacterial, they can be fungal, but most of the scariest new ones are viral. Um, they emerge from non-human hosts. Uh, because they get an opportunity to get into humans because of human contact with with wildlife usually and, and typically the the reservoir host the host that is uh, that is harboring the virus that then spills over into humans isn't affected in the same way it's not an obvious illness necessarily for the reservoir host is that right that's right yeah the reservoir host by definition is a is this the species of creature in which um, the virus lives uh, endemically, inconspicuously over the long term without causing noticeable symptoms. It, uh, and it does that presumably because it has a very um, 
old relationship with that that animal, or it, it could be a plant also. But most of the human viruses uh, of concern um, come to us from from vertebrate animals. Um, so it uh, the virus, whatever it is, lives in this reservoir host. Some species of might be a rodent, might be a bat, might be a, uh, a primate, chimpanzee, or a monkey. Um, live there inconspicuously without causing symptoms, replicating at relatively low levels, and then when it gets into a new kind of host, a new species, such as humans, in some cases it goes wild. It, it replicates very abundantly and causes uh, and causes disease and sometimes uh, terrible disease um, that might be both transmissible, highly transmissible among humans, and in some cases also extremely virulent fatal. So the, the real mystery at the core of, of spillover and, and Ebola is what is Ebola's reservoir host, which we still aren't, don't have a definitive answer of what the reservoir host is for Ebola. But, there, but you really learn about, in, in your book, about all of these heroes, whether they're ecologists or biologists or laboratory scientists who are to figure out which animal which creature is is quietly hosting th- this virus that keeps spilling over periodically? That's right. That's right. Each of these new emerging diseases is essentially a, a mystery story. That's one of the things that makes it made it relatively easy to write about, and I hope makes it easy to read about. Each of these is a mystery story, and and the people who go out, the disease ecologists and and wildlife vet- veterinarians and epidemiologists and others who go out and try and solve the mysteries uh, surrounding these new emerging diseases are the are the detectives are the heroes of, of both of my books on on this subject uh, and in the case of of Ebola virus as you mentioned David after 38 years since the first known outbreak of Ebola virus we still don't know what the reservoir host is we don't know the identity of that creature in which it, it lives secretively and conspicuously you hear people say oh it's fruit bats african fruit bats and fruit bats are at the top of the list of suspects but it has not been confirmed the the absolute uh, gold standard uh, proof of um, of the reservoir host relationship has not been established. That requires isolating live virus from the the species in question, and that has never done, been done with Ebola virus. No one has ever isolated live Ebola virus from a non-human animal of any sort in Africa or anywhere else. So that that search goes on. Well, I was really fascinated to to learn that populations of gorillas and chimpanzees are being decimated by the Ebola virus in Africa as well as humans, but doubly surprised that we don't ever seem to hear about that. Uh, Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just sort of human um, self-interest that we're not talking about populations of gorillas that are disappearing from the Ebola virus? Yeah, Yeah, this has been a terrible crisis, particularly for the lowland gorilla in central uh, Central Africa. Uh, scientists on the ground there estimate that thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of gorillas have been killed by Ebola after, over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, the great apes, and that in Africa that means chimpanzees and gorillas, are highly susceptible to Ebola. It, it affects them very adversely. It kills them very quickly. 
Uh, and uh, there has been evidence collected from gorilla carcasses and chim- chimpanzee carcasses of Ebola infection. It passes from one to another. Nobody knows exactly how many it's killed, but the, the great apes in Central Africa, the chimps and the, and, and the gorillas, are, are already um, highly threatened. I think they're technically endangered species. They might be merely threatened on the endangered species list. But anyway, they are, um, they are declining drastically because of hunting and habitat loss. But now we know also that they're declining because of Ebola infection. And, and your book seems to suggest that uh, ecological disturbance and habitat disturbance is part of what raises the risk and causes these episodic breakouts of Ebola as well. That's right. Um, every, every species of animal, plant, fungus, bacteria on the planet carries its own unique uh, forms of virus infecting those various different kinds of organisms. And so in the more diverse, the most diverse ecosystems, including the equatorial forests, where there are many, many, many species of animals, plants, and these other organisms, there are also many, many uh, kinds of so far unidentified, undiscovered viruses. And when we humans go into those forests and cut down trees and build our settlements and our timber camps and our logging, uh, our mining camps, uh, and kill um, the, the wildlife and eat it, we expose ourselves to those new viruses from all these other species. We give them the opportunity to leap, to spill over from their reservoir host into humans. That's one of the one of the the important factors driving this trend around the world, but particularly in the tropics, of new emerging diseases coming to us from wildlife. It's because it's not because the viruses are looking for us. It's because we're intruding upon the animals in which they live and exposing ourselves, giving them the opportunity to become human viruses. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to science writer and journalist David Quammen about his latest book, Ebola, The Natural and Human History of a Deadly Virus. So, so far, Ebola, David, is considered a a dead-end virus. What what does that mean? Well, among humans, it was considered a dead-end. It probably still is. Humans are a dead-end host in the sense that it spills over occasionally, every few years, into human populations. It causes causes terrible illness, it causes deaths, and then in the past it has either died out or it has been stopped. There have been about uh, 23 previous um, outbreaks of Ebola virus in Africa, and none of those killed more than about 300 people. The total number of fatalities before this year from Ebola was only about 1,800 people. In each of those cases, um, uh, international and national health authorities who showed up on the scene, in some of those cases anyway, and, um, and instituted uh, the, the medical procedures that, that stop Ebola, barrier nursing, gowns, gloves, masks, um, uh, cautious disposal of, of or, or burial of, uh, of, vic- of dead victims. Um, isolating contacts, isolating cases, tracing contacts, and separating people from, um, from uh, infected people so that uh, the virus cannot, cannot pass anymore. It passes only by uh, direct, bodily, direct contact with bodily fluids, and if you cut down that possibility, then you stop the virus, and that's, that's happened in the past. But now with this horrible 
situation in West Africa. It's gone from being an outbreak to being a genuine epidemic in those countries. It's continuing, and uh, in Sierra Leone, apparently, the numbers are, of cases are continuing to rise. Um, it's not likely, at, not at all likely, to be the next big pandemic that spreads around the world and, and affects millions of people and kills tens or hundreds of thousands. That's more likely to be a different kind of virus. But so far in 2014, unfortunately, Ebola has not come to a dead end in humans. And, and we need to do everything we can to help the, those West African countries bring it to a close, bring it to a dead end. Will you describe how every time that there's a spillover event, that the virus goes from the reservoir host into humans, that it's like the virus is playing the lottery and that there's a long shot chance every time it spills over that this time it won't be a dead end event? Is that because uh, the virus is altering and adapting to the human host each time or is it just different circumstances that the virus is finding each time it plays the lottery? Well, viruses don't have intentionality, of course, but they are subject to Darwinian natural selection. So uh, each time they get into a new host, a new kind of host, if they find they can replicate, then um, the numbers increase. The virus is mutating because viruses tend to mutate. They, they make mistakes in replicating themselves. And that mutation is random, but it represents the raw material for Darwinian natural selection. And that means the possibility of adaptation. If the virus uh, mutates in such a way that does allow it to adapt to humans as distinct from its original host, its reservoir host, then it can become a very significant human virus. Ebola so far has not done that, but think back just a few decades, there was a, a, a virus uh, that uh, was living in chimpanzees, uh, and we now refer to it as simian immunodeficiency virus, uh, chimp. Uh, and it spilled over from a single chimpanzee into a single human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon back around the beginning of the 20th century. We know this now from good genetic work. And it became the AIDS pandemic. It became the pandemic strain of HIV. Now, there was a, there was a virus that won the lottery in terms of Darwinian success. It went from being a virus infecting a creature that's declining, as I said, chimpanzees, uh, to being a virus of humans, seven billion of us around the world uh, are its potential habitat. And at this point, it has infected about 70 million people, of whom 35 million have already died. So this latest 2014 Ebola outbreak, which seems different in terms of its scope and scale, do we have a sense of whether that's because of a strain of Ebola being particularly virulent, or is it having to do more with the the inadequacies of the human response? Almost certainly the latter. Uh, it's a public health crisis, um, and uh, and it's probably not a matter of a new strain of Ebola. Uh, that is better adapted to, to human transmission. Um, the, what we are seeing happening in, in West Africa um, probably reflects the, the ugly facts of um, poverty and overcrowding and inadequate health care, inadequate expenditure of money on health infrastructure, uh, materials and training, uh, 
decades of crippled governance in those three poor countries probably reflects those ugly facts more than it reflects the ugly facts of Ebola virus itself um, taking a new form. Uh, we know that um, this this strain of Ebola has been mutating. There's been some good scientific work published on that, but there's no evidence so far that it has adapted to be either more transmissible or more lethal in humans than, than previous strains of this particular species of Ebola virus. Can you talk about some of the misconceptions about the symptoms of Ebola, perhaps uh, originating from the book Hot Zone? Yes, people are particularly scared of this virus, um, in, in, to some extent for good reason, because it has a high case fatality rate, and it's a nasty, nasty virus, but in some cases because they have misconceptions about this particular spooky thing that we call Ebola virus. People have the impression that it's, uh, it causes extraordinarily bloody disease in humans. Well, in some cases it's bloody, but it's not invariably bloody. Probably in less than half of the cases does it cause, uh, cause catastrophic hemorrhaging. It does not cause people's internal organs to dissolve, to deliquesce, to melt down. And people have had these ideas. And it has made Ebola seem like not just a, a virus, but some sort of a preternatural miasma. And it's not. It is just a very nasty virus that, that requires transmission by direct, direct contact with bodily fluids. It can be controlled. Uh, I suppose the other reason that it seems spooky to people is because it comes out of the African forest, and most people uh, have uh, only the faintest um, inchoate ideas about the African forest. I've spent a lot of time in the African forest, of forests of Central Africa, particularly myself, and, and they're... They're not for everybody, but they're really lovely, wonderful uh, ecosystems. And, and uh, when you're there, um, Ebola virus is among the last things that you're thinking about. And, and how, what is your feeling on the, on the U.S. response in terms of uh, what it's doing well or, or poorly in aid when it comes to the West African outbreak? Yeah. Well, I think the U.S. has stepped up rather well, better than virtually any other country in the world in terms of um, providing um, partnership and assistance to those three countries in West Africa that are trying to stop this virus. We've sent our military over there. We've sent a lot of money and supplies and, and brave volunteers over there. We could be doing more, and I wish we were doing more, but we've been doing more than than most other countries on the planet. Cuba has been helping. China has been helping. Great Britain has been helping. Uh, independent organizations like uh, Médecins Sans Frontières have been helping. All that has been wonderful, uh, but it hasn't been enough. And there's been disorganization on the ground there that, um, that has contributed to the continuation of the thing. In terms of the U.S., uh, I don't think we have... Uh, done especially well at understanding this phenomenon, either understanding the virus or understanding the, the situation in West Africa. We had our little scare in the U.S. when uh, Thomas Eric Duncan, uh, the man from Liberia, uh, was brought to, or went to Dallas and, and was in the hospital and died and then infected two nurses. I don't think anybody yet knows exactly how those nurses became infected, but they weren't supposed to become infected. People had been told that 
that healthcare workers in the U.S. with proper equipment and training wouldn't become infected. And then those two women did become infected, and that scared the bejesus out of a lot of people around the country. But in fact, we haven't had any severe situation with Ebola in this country, and we're not likely to. And notwithstanding those two anomalous cases, um, we have we have dealt with it in the U.S. the way it should be be dealt with. So I think people should be still very concerned about what's going on in Africa, but not worried for their own safety. And, and do you what do you, what are your thoughts in terms of quarantine? Of returning healthcare workers, or you know, different during the panic that happened during the three cases of Ebola that the United States have had, uh, it seemed like there were all these uh, suggestions. Some of them coming from surely from a place of fear and panic that, uh, to have stricter rules around around uh, people coming back who could have been exposed. Is that a calamitous idea? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it was a reasonable thing for us to discuss. I don't think we discussed it very calmly and lucidly. I mean, people were entitled to say, yes, if, if, if people are coming into the country from, from those three countries in West Africa, well, what precautions are we taking? Are we screening them at airports? Are we taking temperatures? Uh, is there mandatory quarantine? I don't think that was ever a very practicable uh, or useful idea. People could always come into this country by indirect routes, um, so there was a, there was a lot of smoke that went up around that discussion of uh, of how to deal with people flying into the U.S. either either Americans returning or um, West Africans coming here, and and uh, it's a complicated question. And I'm not going to say okay, here's exactly what should be done and how it should be done. I I was glad to see that it was discussed, but I wasn't very. Uh, uh, happy about the the level of of rational discourse that we brought to that well i presumed in reading the book that your your past history as a fiction writer uh played a role in in how (laughs) engaging it was because not i mean i learned a lot about biology secret past history as a fiction writer (laughs) (laughs) but but seriously david the uh I learned a ton about biology and epidemiology and about the Ebola virus specifically, but also a lot of uh, really interesting things culturally in, in Africa too. But what really struck me was how how deeply engaging it was as a story. I know it's a, a terrible story, but it's from a dramatic and narrative perspective, you really... Um, I, you could, I could see this as, a, as, as strangely as a great movie, but it was also just a, a really uh, compelling read. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. You know, it's a serious subject, as as you say. Um, but I also feel like when a person writes a book on however serious a subject, uh, there's a requirement to be entertaining uh, as well as instructional. And as I said, it was easy with this book because there are all these great mystery stories and, and these courageous detectives who are going out and, and working on them. So I, I tried to take advantage of that and, and do justice to the narrative element of the subject. I was curious on the narrative level. I, I know that the we've known about Ebola since I think the seventies, but you start the book with a specific outbreak in in Gabon in nineteen ninety six. Was was there something compelling about starting there? Oh yes, yes. Well, that was where it started for me. Um, I was on assignment for National Geographic in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand, and in July of two thousand, I was walking with a. Uh, an American ecologist and explorer named Mike Fay across 
a big block of pristine forest in northeastern Gabon. And it was great gorilla habitat, but the gorillas were missing. It was empty of gorillas. We were noticing that. And, uh, and it was also Ebola habitat. Uh, there had been an Ebola outbreak on the on the edge of this forest at a village just a few years before. And so over the campfire one night, I started hearing about this Ebola outbreak in the village from two of our camp crew, guys who were walking with us through this forest. And they were telling me about their friends and loved ones dying of this. And it was horrible to hear about. And then one of them said, you know, uh, David, there was a strange thing. At around the same time, we saw a pile of 13 dead gorillas nearby in the forest. And I wrote that phrase in my notebook, and it was inscribed in my memory. I knew that those 13 dead gorillas had probably died of Ebola virus. So that was the beginning of my interest in zoonotic diseases. Uh, Ebola, killing gorillas and killing humans and living in some secret reservoir, uh, some other species. So um, it represented the the connectedness of the natural world with, with humans included, in this case, connectedness by way of disease. But I always like writing about the connectedness of humans with the natural world, and, and this was another way of doing that. And do you have any, do any top organizations come to mind that if people were interested in, in helping out in some way? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been giving what money I can to Doctors Without Borders, and I certainly uh, I, I have no direct connection with them. But I, from what I've heard about their work in West Africa, I would highly recommend Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, as somebody deserving of support. In addition, there are organizations like EcoHealth Alliance in New York City, uh, filled with some of these heroic disease detectives I've been talking about who work on this problem over the long term of emerging zoonotic diseases. So yeah, Doctors Without Borders and EcoHealth Alliance are my two favorites. And what about a website for you? Do you have somewhere we can point our listeners to? I'm very easy to find on the web. My, my site is simply uh, com. Great. Well, it was a pleasure having you on HealthWatch today, David. Thank you so much, David. Really a pleasure talking with you, too. We are talking today to science writer David Quammen about his latest book, Ebola, The Natural and Human History of a Deadly Virus. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.